Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches this is the Roy Green Show podcast. Details came out, Roy, that the Indian government actually was not very keen on Trudeau visiting at all. And not certainly not for eight days, certainly not going around India like this. But it was the Canadian government which insisted on such a long, elaborate trip. That was the voice of Shivam Vidge, who was on the air with us yesterday from New Delhi. He's an Indian journalist who wrote a column for the Washington Post while Mr. Trudeau was in India, and uh, the gist of the column was, India is being really rude to Justin Trudeau. I'll play you some more clips from uh, Mr. Vigil a little bit later on, but he did say that the Indian government was not at all excited about Trudeau visiting and certainly didn't want him there for eight days. And later on, he said that India and the government, Indians and the government, were very much aware Mr. Trudeau's presence was not really to create a better relationship with India, but it was really to appeal to Indo-Canadians back home. And there is the specter of an election coming up. Anyway, there's a lot, so much to be said. There are so many points to be made. There's so many questions to be answered. And still, one of the key questions is, is how did a man who was um, convicted of terrorism and uh, attempted murder, how did a man who was convicted of those crimes find himself invited to an event held by the uh, High Commissioner, the Canadian High Commissioner to India? So, uh, Mr. Atwal. My guest knows all about Atwal because um, Atwal almost ended his life he was charged with assaulting the former premier of British Columbia, Ujjal de Sange, and uh, leaving him close to death. The former premier joins us. Mr. Premier, it's good to talk to you. Always good to talk to you, Roy. What do you... Uh, I really honestly don't know where to begin, so I'll, do the, I'll ask you this. Would you assess the Trudeau-India visit? I think that um, it was a bit of a spectacle, Um you know, he um, he essentially reduced Indians to various religions, attending all different religious places and donning different dresses um, for five or six days. Um, and, and eventually, I think that he was able to salvage it with the meeting with the Prime Minister of India, where they hugged and, I guess, made up, um, as we usually say in Canada, they kissed and made up. Um, but I think that we're no farther ahead in terms of the um, the Indo-Canadian relations. Um, it would have been better to do a shorter trip, more substantive, packed with meetings with politicians and industrialists and um, 
high-tech industry people and uh, even Bollywood would have would have been fine, but uh, but it it went on for too long, and uh, and I think that I think everyone was tired of it, including Canadians, not just Indians. It went on too long. There was a sense of confusion about the whole thing, and the only the only aspect of the trip that I focused on, actually two of them, one was the the outfits that Mr. Trudeau decided to wear, which my guest yesterday more than less ridiculed. Um, but there was also the presence of uh, Jaspal Adwal, who you know, um, and, and he, was the, he was the one... Uh, the one, the one item, the one force, the one being that there was a focus on, and it was for all the wrong reasons. I still want to know how he wound up in India. There was the ludicrous suggestion by a senior bureaucrat that we all know who it is, but we're not supposed to mention his name. <laughs> Somebody's already mentioned it. <laughs> it does get silly, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And so the suggestion from the senior bureaucrat, we all whose name we know but we're not supposed to mention, was that India somehow may have arranged for Atwal to be there for some peculiar reason that only that senior bureaucrat and his boss are probably aware of. What do you make of that? Well, from reports, I gather that he was taken off what was called the blacklist way back in the summer of last year. So Indians, uh, according to Shivam Vij, uh, who didn't want Mr. Trudeau there at all, and particularly not for eight days, um, engineered it uh, eight months earlier to take him off the blacklist and somehow then create a conduit for him to be present in Bombay and possibly at the reception in Delhi. I mean, that, that just doesn't make sense to me. And and, and the fact is, you know, um, this man, uh, he ingratiates himself with all different politicians. He's everywhere in the community. And so... It's not difficult um, or impossible for him to have pictures taken with Mr. Trudeau in the past. That one can understand. Um, but, but for him to be cleared diplomatically, politically, and in terms of security, to be at the Bombay reception, have pictures taken with uh, Mrs. Trudeau, uh, and then be possibly at the Delhi reception, I, I just think that that's really not the fault of uh, this lowly uh, young Sarai MP from Surrey. Uh, it's the fault of the PMO, the RCMP, uh, and, and the security advisor uh, that, that you haven't named, um, as well as the High Commission. It is mind-boggling. It is really mind-boggling that this actually took place. And then that ludicrous semi-explanation, or, or, or I don't know, what would you call it, speculation, was was brought forward for you personally to 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 see Atwal uh, in India in this circumstance must have been very difficult for you to see. Well, it was it was. I mean, I thought it was dumb politically, and it was dangerous politically, diplomatically for Canada to do it. Personally, I've kind of you know uh, forgiven the man. I mean, he actually came to see me back in two thousand six. Wanted me to facilitate his visa to India, and I said, look, I can't help you for obvious reasons. You should go to another MP. And he did, and he was denied the visa. Um, but, um, but you know, I, I have moved on. I've bumped into him at various events in, in my public life in, in Surrey and in Greater Vancouver. 
Um, but but for the government of Canada to have him be at the reception with an invite from the High Commission uh, of Canada for India, I mean, that just is beyond the pale. It, it's something that incomprehensible. B- because they set out to remedy and improve the relations between India and Canada. Mr. Modi had taken uh, Mr. Trudeau aside at Davos earlier and said, all is not well with our relationship. This is the problem. Khalistan is the problem. And your support, tacit support of the Khalistanis and of the glorification of violence by being in those events where that happens uh, is, is the problem. And so they proceed to have a couple of ministers, not all the four Sikh ministers, but just two of them, say that they were neither Khalistanis nor Khalistani sympathizers. One would need to ask, how about the other two? Are they Khalistanis or Khalistani sympathizers? Because they didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. And the other question uh, remains that they then, after saying that, they go to India and they poke the, the chief minister of Punjab in the eye, uh, the chief minister who they had um, prevented from coming to Canada when he was the leader of the opposition because they said, oh, you'll be addressing the diaspora and you have an election coming, as if we don't have an election coming now in a year's time in Canada. And Mr. Um, Trudeau has been uh, uh, you know, uh, going to all of the religious places and, uh, and electioneering, in, in a sense, for back home. So they, they said they didn't want to meet the chief minister. And eventually they relented. They met the chief minister. I thought that was a very good step for them. He was gracious enough to say, I want to welcome the chief, uh, the, the prime minister to the Golden Temple. And um, he, they then go on, and of course this political bomb explodes on the scene in the, in the form of Mr. Atwal, um, a diplomatic bomb. And I, I think that that really set the relationship and back and and actually um, clouded the whole trip, and and Mr. Trudeau, as I said, um, may have been able to salvage a bit of it at the end, but I think that uh, this repair uh, to the Indian Canadian relationship is going to take a long time, because politicians in Canada uh, haven't stopped for the last so many years, last several decades, haven't stopped from going to events where dismemberment of India is promoted, where glorification of violence is promoted, and where the likes of Air India, Bomber Tulindar Pramar are paraded as heroes. They've not stopped going to those functions, going to those temples, and going to those parades. And I think that, that, you know, from my perspective, I think that Canadian politics have been totally insensitive to India, in a sense that they don't realize that in 1947, India was divided, and people were butchered uh, trying to cross uh, newly minted boundaries by the British. And several million people but were butchered. It was the largest migration in history in the world in peacetime of people back and forth across borders. And India is so sensitive that it is never going to allow itself to be divided again. That's why, you know... Um, like we are sensitive about Quebec separatists, but we haven't had the kind of violence. We had, you know, one bout of violence back in the Pierre Laporte days when Trudeau Sr. was the prime minister. But we haven't had violence associated with it. India has suffered as a result of the violence associated uh, with uh, Khalistan. 
and uh, it's never going to allow um, it to be divided again. And Canada needs to be sensitive. And and to be honest, Mr. Trudeau and all of the various political leaders and the political parties have not been sensitive to that issue. Yeah. Well, I would. Uh, I may offend some people, but my guess is that Mr. Trudeau probably isn't aware of what you've just shared with us, because I remember him once saying. I don't really know what's going on the news. When something happens, somebody tells me about it. So I, I, I don't know that he's historically um, up to date. Um, You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. What are your thoughts on, on, on the politicians playing the race card? Well, I think that, that, I think, you know, sometimes when you raise legitimate questions as Canadians about security, about those kinds of issues, um, people are quick to um, uh, try and take you down by saying that somehow you're being racist. And and I think one of the one of the problems in Canada that, that we are contending with, as the rest of the world is contending with, is um, is the sort of uh, as my friend Tarek Fattah calls the sinkhole of identity politics. And we've had uh, that identity politics um, fairly um, prevalent in Canada. And, uh, and you know, the corollary of that is that, that politicians who are mindful of that identity politics and want to play into it uh, uh, are quick to accuse others of um, somehow being racist, even when you raise legitimate questions about security when when i raised that question about the security i was actually responding to a um there was a petition going in the interior of british columbia uh vis-a-vis syrian immigrants saying not in my backyard and i was saying that's the wrong attitude we should urge the government instead to do very strong security checks and allow uh, people who can pass those security checks into the country because we are a compassionate country. Um, and I was offended when um, uh, Premier Wynne at that time had basically said, let's not, uh, let's not be racist in the name of um, security checks. Uh, that's what she implied. I've forgotten the exact words that she had used. And, and she did, and it happens again and again. And uh, And it's disturbing because... It seems to me to be pointed at by politicians as an issue of convenience at Caucasians in Canada. I'm going to raise that with politicians when I speak with them. If you're going to if you're going to play the race card, then finish the sentence and be specific. No, absolutely. I mean, we we I think I think we play the race card. We play the religious card, and and uh, you know, um, I mean, the politicians who have always attended these large parades uh, in places like Vancouver or Toronto. Where um, there is the glorification of the likes of the Air India bomber Permar, um, and they say nothing about it uh, except appear on these stages and participate uh, in the activities, while you have the dismemberment of India being promoted, you have glorification of violence. They ignore all that, yet they stand shoulder to shoulder with those people on those stages and speak to um, the large numbers of people. Now that I think is you know that is done obviously because you're playing the religious card, you're playing the right. ethnic card, right. and and so we've been doing this for a long time in Canada. Uh, if we continue to do that um, in, in a willfully blind fashion and we're not too careful about it, 
um, we will have the kind of divisions in Canada, not today, maybe in the next 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, that you see in the United States of America with the likes of the Tea Party and and Trump's um, right. base. Premier, I have to uh, let you go, but I thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate speaking with you. You're most welcome. All thank the you. best. Premier Ujal Dosange. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Alex. As a translator for Canada's military in Afghanistan, he's being hunted by the Taliban, and he wants to come to this country and live here, which I believe he should have every right to do, having stood in the front lines with our with our troops. Alex, it's great to finally speak with you. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Well, first of all, let me thank you for your time and providing me this opportunity to talk about me and my friends. Because there are more, there's more yeah. than you. There's a there's a whole series of translators who need uh, who need help. The Taliban are hunting you, correct? Exactly. That's why I received and threat uh, letters from them, and I kept a couple of them just to show you as an evidence. And I translated one, and I shared that. They uh, they wrote you they wrote you a letter. How did they how did they manage to find you? So they have uh, people watching, I mean, working for them through nighttime, and they threw these uh, letters at night in your compound, and they just disappear. So they're not sure. I mean, exactly they're the, the ones that they're looking for, the governmental people, and they're looking for the interpreters, as they call them, uh, betrayers or, let's say, infidels. And... That's why they want to kill people, I mean, who works for the government of Afghanistan as well, who works for the uh, foreigners, I mean, for the ISAF and NATO forces in Afghanistan. So the fact that you worked with Canadian forces and you were on the front line with Canadian forces, that makes you to them a traitor and they've threatened to kill you and behead you. Not only me, they are just trying to kill my family as well. And this is not about me only, it's about... All the, I mean, those who helped ISAF forces, Canadians, U.S. Army, Polish, whoever army they helped and assisted. So, Taliban are against these people. I mean, I saw one of my friends, they decapitated him. They put his chest, I mean, his head on his chest on the highway, Kabul, Kandahar. And it's very horrifying. I mean, it's a terrible situation here. I don't know what to say about this. Yeah. Tell us what it was like when you served with Canadian forces. What did you do? I was really happy, first of all. I mean, before I started my assignment as a linguist with Canadian forces, I really liked them. I mean, the moral they had. I really liked going outside with them, talking with the local national the Canadian forces. While we were walking, I mean, we received too many small arms fire from all around, I mean, I like my job. I like the people who were helping my people. I mean, the Canadian soldiers, they were helping my Afghan National Army. And why not myself? I had to help them as well because I was in the link between the Army of Canada and my army just to let them know what's going on. I mean, the language and the translation or interpretation, I was helping in this case. So to be honest with you, I was really grateful being with the 
Canadian Army working with them, going outside. And they were really kind to me. Not only me, my friends, everyone. I mean, they were different. I'm not just exaggerating. It's real. And I know I you and I. You, all those people. You and I have traded emails. I know you're a genuine person. I've seen the letters that have been written about you by officers in both the Canadian and the U.S. forces and the respect they have for you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Afghan citizen and uh, an interpreter for our Canadian military on the front lines. He was with them. And when our Canadian military was shot at, that meant Alex was being shot at as well. But he said to us, and we'll talk to him again in about a minute, he said to us before the break that he was honored to serve with our guys, and he, and, uh, yeah, women soldiers too, I know. I use that term so loosely, our guys. Blame it on my, uh, blame it on the era that I was born in. Anyhow, that's not important. What's important here is he was honored to serve with Canadians. And what has our federal government done? It slammed its doors in his face and in the faces of other translators. And they're being hunted by the very people we fought. And they volunteer to help us. Now they're being hunted by the people we fought. And we're doing what for them? Nothing. just want to read you a brief open letter to the Canadian administration by a translator's group. Facing death at home, despairing over the delay and difficulties of obtaining visas from the countries which employed them, more and more translator interpreters who helped allied forces in Iraq and Afghanistan are joining the flow of refugees into Europe. The International Coalition of Linguists appeals to Canada not to limit help to individual publicized cases, but to implement a policy to expedite visas to all the interpreters it left behind. That makes absolute sense. Alex, thank you for holding on. Thank you for uh, for still being there to talk to us. When you uh, when you went out with the uh, with our with our with our soldiers, was there a sense like was a real sense of belonging for you that y- you were in the same unit? They treat you like you were one of them. Yes, of course. Uh, they were treating me like not as a linguist, but as a soldier and as a teammate. So we were under heavy fire. They were protecting me. Like, I'm their own soldier, like, even like a brother's, I mean, like a brother. And we were calling each other, like, I mean, our friends, our linguist friends, the brothers in arms. We were not, I mean, there was no any discrimination. There was no any racism and stuff like this. We were like brothers. And my point is the Canadian armed forces, they were like brothers. I mean, to me and my friends. So they were protecting me all the time. You had a you had a sense, did you not, uh, that you would be welcome to come to Canada? And was there a, a time period where you might have been yeah. able to uh, to apply? What what happened as far as that's concerned? Uh, thanks for asking this question, and I will just share a very important, definitely positive for those who open this process. So, kind of the process for linguists. And the time was very short. And some of us even didn't know about this. I mean, even a single word about this process. 
So while the process was open, I was serving with another team. I mean, I was serving for, for the U.S. Army military as a linguist in Uruguay province. And I didn't even know about the process. Nobody told us. So I didn't even know anybody in Canada to get a hold of him, like, to just open or reopen this process. Although Joe Warmington, columnist, he tried his best, and he published our stories on Twitter and Facebook, but didn't affect on Justin Trudeau and Ahmed Hussein. So I'm not complaining about this. I'm not complaining about anyone. I'm just asking for help, and I'm asking for protection. So as you mentioned about the period, so the period of the process was very short, to be honest with you, even like for a couple of years. So we were busy in other provinces of Afghanistan working for other coalition forces. So nobody told us. So although they had our phone numbers, our contact numbers, but they did not inform us like there's going to be a process for linguists. Well, can I add something, Mr. Roy, just... I mean, kindly and friendly, that's something very important with you and your team. Go ahead. I kind of request from you and your team to hold a press conference with immigration minister or, and, of course, Justin Trudeau and share the story about the lives of left-behind linguists is still in danger and let them know that we are looking for protection. Meanwhile, I would like you to ask immigration minister about one million refugees and immigrants over the next three years. What about the few number of linguists who mm-hmm. serve yep. Canada troops in Afghanistan? We missed the process because of the shortage of the time. I mean, I was not even aware of that process. Nobody informed us. And of course, let me share one of my friend's story, which is very sad. I mean, making me very sad. Alam Khan was one of the other linguists. He was living in Afghanistan, but he escaped. He went to Turkey. Now he's sleeping on benches, on I mean, at the parks, even on the streets, because he went there illegally. He just went there to protect himself from getting killed in Afghanistan. And we're all helping each other. I mean, we cannot do anything because... We're under pressure. We're under danger. I mean, let me mention one, one of other stories what happened to my best friend, John, James Akam. Who well, we've talked to, thank, who's living in Canada. Yeah, yeah. I thank James, I mean, John McCollum, the previous immigration minister, who helped my friend, and he took James Akam from Germany to Canada and his family from Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So that was an exclusive effort with John McCollum made. We were hoping that this could be comprehensive, I mean, for any of us, for all the interpreters, but it, that did not happen. I mean, we are, we are looking still forward. I mean, we are looking for a help from someone from Canada. I mean, we have a word, all language, we made a word, and we made, we made one choice, like, Canada, please, of your allies. You know, um, I have to say this. You mentioned Joe Warmington before from the Toronto Sun. Joe's a good friend of mine, and he he has just yes. worked so hard and with such dedication for all the translators. He's he's really 
the one uh, in Canadian media who's carried the ball here yeah. and tried to really make things happen for you. He and my, my chorus colleague, Charles Adler, of course, as well. I'm very proud of both of them. But we need to have a policy in place where we can now help you and help other linguists who were with our forces come to Canada. Have you, um, I have to ask you because you you served with the Americans. Did you try the United States or is your is your heart set on coming yeah. to Canada? Uh, it's harder than coming to Canada because they uh, ask and acquire lots of documents because the company I worked with names IMS, International Management Services, I sent the HR letter from that company in the United States, denied that letter. They said, this company is not valuable for us. It's just a, let's say, commercial company. And they just hire linguists, and they see their own profit in it. So they don't have any link or connection with the government, Department of Defense of the United States. That's why they rejected my case, although I had those documents I sent them. So they just denied because of that single letter that I couldn't make it. Well, I've seen documents uh, from you yeah. and about you, and uh, everything yeah. that I've seen would seem to suggest very clearly that you should be eligible, certainly to enter Canada, and the fact that you served with our military yeah. should make it immediately a, an, an urgent matter for this government to bring all the linguists who served with our military into Canada, and I'm sure that the veterans who fought alongside you in Afghanistan would support that. And I'm sure that the people of this country would expect no less from the federal government. If they're going to bring ISIS terrorists into Canada, and if the prime minister is going to say that ISIS terrorists can can contribute extraordinarily to Canada's well-being, then, then there is no, I mean, that is just so unacceptable by Trudeau. There is not, there's no reason for us to accept anything less than you, Alex, and your fellow linguists who served with Canadian soldiers to come to Canada, feel safe here, build a life here. We'll keep pushing. I know that politicians listen to the program, and uh, I'm going to be sending this our conversation to them, and we'll just keep pushing and pushing and pushing, and the whole idea is to help all of you. And as a representative of all the left-behind linguists, I thank you very much. I thank all those who are helping I mean, who are on this story and trying to solve this issue for linguists, especially for left-behind linguists. I mean, yeah. I appreciate it. All right, my friend. Representative. I will be back in touch with you, and uh, I'm sure Joe will be in touch with you as well, and, and, and we'll work on it. Thank you very much. Okay, I appreciate Alex. it. And I don't know. Maybe I made this story a bit... I mean, well or bad, because my English got just a little uh, not in a good mood, you know, because I've been away from. Yeah, you be safe. Forces. You be safe. You be safe, and we'll be in touch. All right. Okay. Okay. I will just try. I mean, we're just hiding these days. Staying at home like a babysitter. (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. We'll we'll be in touch. We'll push. I appreciate it. Okay, my friend. All All the best. It was nice talking to you. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye, Alex. I mean, I thank you and your team. Yes, sir. Yeah, have a good one. Thank you. You too. He needs to get out of there. He needs to get out of there. Otherwise, he'll die. 
So what's all this talk about hate? Canada needs to do better? Absolutely, Mr. Trudeau. Canada and Canadians, no. Canada, yes. You being the Canadian representing or being the figurehead of the Canadian government. You're not the head of state, you're the prime minister. You can do better. You need to do better. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Patrick Brown, the former Ontario PC party leader and candidate for his former job, has served libel notice to CTV after sexual misconduct allegations, as you know. What are his chances of success, and what will CTV's likely defense be? Joining me on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network is Lior Samfiru, employment law specialist at Samfiru Tamarkin LLP of Toronto and Vancouver, and one of Brown's still unnamed accusers was an employee at Patrick Brown's office. Lior, thank you for the time. Thank you for having me. So if we, before we talk about this case going forward or the papers being served, the whole idea of what happened to Patrick Brown, how does that, how does that strike you, knowing that one of the people was an employee and that, that person remains unnamed, as does the other person, and the stories changed from one, at least one of the people. How does this all strike you? you know, it, it strikes me, and, and it always has, Roy, as uh, being every, everyone jumping the gun and jumping to conclusions. And, you know, if an employer came to me and said there's an allegation from one employee to another, there, I would tell them there's a process you have to go through before you jump to conclusions, before you uh, punish someone. Uh, and, you know, I, I would look at all the factors, including what actually uh, can be proven, the conduct of the parties afterwards. And certainly if I if I would find that or the employer would find that the the conduct of the accuser was inconsistent with their allegations, but ultimately that would be something that would be factoring in when we assess the viability and the truthfulness of the allegations. So, I mean, this is, is a situation whether or not... Uh, Mr. Brown did what is alleged, and, and whether or not that is a bad thing or not, regardless, putting that aside, clearly this is a situation where he was punished, I think, uh, before there was any investigation, before any conduct was proven, just by virtue of these allegations being made. Okay, so let me ask you then, what are his chances of winning this, this libel case? So what's interesting, Roy, in the situation like this, our laws uh, obviously want to encourage journalists from bringing stories. Uh, they don't want journalists to be afraid that if they get it wrong, then they're going to be sued for defamation. So a defense that's available to journalists is something called responsible communication. Essentially, journalists are allowed to be wrong. They're allowed to get it wrong, and essentially they're allowed to, to advert or post something that's false so long as their conduct was reasonable. So the defense here, I expect, for CTV or for the journalist is going to be that we did our homework. We had sources that we deemed reliable. We corroborated the stories. We reached out to Mr. Brown for a comment. We did what we were supposed to do. Now, to the extent that despite all our reasonable efforts, we, we were duped. We got it wrong. Well, then that's not our fault. So this is an exception to the usual rule that I can't say things about you that are negative and false. But journalists, in matters of public interest, and certainly I would think that if uh, a political party leader on the eve of the election is accused of uh, sexual misconduct, that is of public interest. 
they're allowed to get it wrong so long as their conduct and their behavior uh, was reasonable. So that is ultimately, I think, what this is going to come down to. Not whether or not Mr. Brown did what is alleged, but how did the journalists conduct themselves? Did they do their homework? And if they did not, if they were very cavalier, if they just decided to jump to conclusions so they can get a story out there and make themselves look good somehow, then there absolutely could be significant liability on these journalists. Um, so is there, I mean, is there a chance that Patrick Brown wins this case? Sure. Uh, I think that ultimately what he's going to try to prove is that there was no work or homework or background checks, et cetera, done by CTV and its reporters. I think he's even alleging that one of the reporters had a relationship with one of the, uh, the people that made the allegations. And I think that the problem for CTV here is if they were unreasonable, the damages clearly to Mr. Brown are very significant. To the extent that now his political career, which was certainly taking off, is now going to be uh, destroyed, then the liability there could be huge. It could be obviously in the millions and millions of dollars. So, yes, could they lose it? Yes, and it's going to come down to how good a job did its reporters do. Is the fact that one of the complainants worked for Patrick Brown, this, is, that a, is that a joker in the deck, as it were, or does that not really matter? Well, it, it, it certainly uh, matters in terms of the appropriateness of Mr. Brown's behavior. Uh, and, and it also uh, potentially is relevant to the issue of if CTV knows that one of these individuals works for, works for Mr. Brown, uh, what other efforts were made to corroborate her stories? Were the other employees reached, uh, uh, et cetera, now that you know the affiliation there? So I think that is a relevant factor. But ultimately, it really comes down to whether or not the, the reporters did their homework uh, or they, they saw themselves as having a juicy story and we want to be in front of it and get be the first ones to publish it. So if that's the case, we're not going to really dot our I's and cross our T's. That's where they're going to get into trouble if that's what they did. CTV says that it will stand behind its reporting, and it hasn't changed uh, from what I've been told. I haven't looked uh, online at, uh, at, at the original stories, but I've been told that they haven't been changed. Is, is, what does that suggest? Anything or nothing? Well, I, I certainly think that CTV in a situation like this has to fight for its its own reputation, its own reporting, its, its the conduct of its reporters, uh, and and to the extent, again, that it got anything wrong, it's going to have to point fingers at others and say, we did everything we could. So I, I haven't seen anything surprising from CTV. I think they're going to have to take that position. And it is a fairly tall mountain for Mr. Brown to climb here in showing that the reporters really uh, uh, didn't, didn't do the job that they were supposed to. So it's not a trivial thing. And generally speaking, our courts do lean towards uh, the, the idea of journalists uh, having the freedom to, to uh, come out with important stories. So with all that said, I do think that Mr. Uh, Mr. Brown does have an uphill battle, but to him it's probably more about trying to clear his name, trying to show that the allegations were false. That may not be relevant to his claim against uh, CTV because they're allowed to post false, post false information. Uh, but that said, for him, I, I expect that it's not so much the monetary compensation, is to be able to show there that, that he he has been somehow exonerated, that what they said was false, and to try to re- revive his reputation and his career in the process. So the uh, the members of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario, who are looking at the leadership candidates now, and looking at the man who was the leader just a few weeks ago, and according to polling that I've seen, is uh, tied for the lead or slightly ahead now, 
Again, in polling, the, the members of the Conservative Party, Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario, have some interesting choices to make. Lior, thank you so much for clearing this up and providing us with the information. Always great speaking with you. My pleasure, Roy. Thank you. Take care. Lior Samfiru. Samfiru to Mark and LLP. They're in Toronto and uh, Vancouver, and they are employment law and uh, uh, unlawful dismissal specialists. So get in touch with them if it's an issue for you. Patrick Brown, yeah, I saw them some I think Main Street polling, suggesting that uh, that he's either tied with Christine Elliott or just leading, not enough to, to win on a first ballot, neither of them. And then in third place is, uh, according to the polling, Doug Ford. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.